Thank you so much for Rick and his heart for you and his wisdom and how you've used his journey to shape him uh, to be a leader within your church. And I just pray and ask that you bless him this morning and that uh, you would make all of our uh, ears receptive to hearing this message and our hearts and our wills uh, eager to respond in faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Jeff. Good morning. Good morning. I've got a few, uh, pretend there's coffee in here. I've got a few drinks here. And these types of drinks, they're all designed to fulfill some kind of a need or a desire that we have, right? Um, we drink coffee to wake up, to be alert. Um, A&W, of course, I'll have a large root beer with that combo because I like the sugar rush and it's delicious. And Red Bull uh, is an energy drink, and it's designed to give you a boost of energy. The problem with all of these uh, beverages are that they fall short of what they promise. They don't ultimately satisfy the desire that you're after. While the sugar rush in a pop feels great at the time, about 10 minutes later, at least in my own body, I feel gross and I regret everything in life. Coffee, I love it. But if I have too much coffee, I'm no longer alert, but rather distracted and jittery and dizzy and lightheaded. And Red Bull, in their commercials, if you've ever seen them, they promise that Red Bull gives you wings. What they don't tell you is that about four hours after, the wings fall off and you crash hard. What I'm getting at is that we're always looking to quench a thirst in our life. And it may be a literal thirst, which, by the way, none of these are great thirst quenchers. Or it may be a deeper life thirst that we have, if you will. Maybe your thirst is uh, a longing for a little bit more influence or a little bit more power. Or maybe it is to have a little bit more money in your bank account. Um, or I know my own tendency sometimes is to think, if I only had that one new gadget, then I'd be satisfied. Um, maybe you long for intentional community or deeper relationships, deeper friendships in your life. You might have a thirst for forgiveness or just freedom from some kind of an unhealthy cycle in your life that makes you feel trapped. And maybe you long for inner peace, joy, or just plain rest. And some of us long for our circumstances to change or hoping to have a new chapter in our life. And the truth is we all go through life with all kinds of different thirsts, hoping to have our deepest desires and our longings met. And if you can relate to any of those examples I gave, and I know I can, I believe that God has something in his word for us this morning. And I believe this because his word is alive. Hebrews 4.12 says, for the word of God is living and active. The psalmist says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light on my path. There's always something new and something fresh and something thirst-quenching when we open God's word, amen? Let's pray. God, I, I thank you for your word. And Holy Spirit, speak to us today and open up your word for us. For some of us, this story we're about to read is a familiar one. And for others of us, it may be a new one. But we believe and we ask that you may have something for all of us in it this morning. Give us ears to hear your word today. Soften our hearts 
and open our minds. We invite you, Lord, to do your work in us today. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bibles, you can open them up to John chapter 4, starting in verse 1. And uh, we're going to be going straight through uh, the passage. I don't know if I have access to the clicker here or not. Um, Nope. Okay, maybe I'll just prompt you for the next slide then. We're just going to read through the passage there, Greg. John 4, 1 through 42. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew. And I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. 
Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? My food, Jesus said, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest? I tell you, open up your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you have said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. This is such a rich story and it would be easy to do a whole sermon series just on this story. But for today, I'd like to share just a few thoughts that were impressed on my mind as I spent time studying and praying about this passage. So let's unpack this text. We'll start back at the beginning and at the end, I'll share a few key thoughts to challenge us with. Verse one through three, Jesus and his disciples, not wanting to distract from John the Baptist's ministry and not wanting to prematurely attract too much attention from the Pharisees, as that may have short-circuited Jesus' ministry, they decide to leave. They were in the southern part of Israel, in Judea, and they decide to go north to Galilee. And the text says Jesus had to go through Samaria. Why did Jesus have to go through Samaria? What's the big deal with Samaria? Well, the Jews traveled frequently between Judea and Galilee, and to get from one place to another, The most natural and direct and shortest route would take you, well, shortest distance between two points is a straight line, right? So it would take you directly through Samaria. There was, however, an alternate way that if you really wanted to avoid Samaria, you could cross the Jordan River, go north, cross it back just south of the Sea of Galilee, and that would take about three and a half times longer to do. So you may be wondering, Why would anyone want to avoid Samaria? You see, there was a long history between uh, Jews and Samaritans, and there was a bad-blooded rivalry between these two people groups. And not just like a friendly Canucks Flames type of sports rivalry, these people hated each other. Just to give you a little snapshot of what happened 900 years prior, you can read about this in First and Second Kings, the nation of Israel splits into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom had its capital as Samaria, and the southern kingdom had as its capital Jerusalem. And then fast forward about 200 years, in 721 BC, the Assyrian Empire invades Israel, and they deport all the most skilled Jews with money or skills or talents, they deport them all out of the land. And everyone that they deemed of little to no value, the the suckers of Israel, they left behind. And then they brought in foreigners to intermarry with those left behind Jews so as to water down their bloodline and bring in their pagan worship. 
So eventually this mixed race of half Jew and half Gentile would become known as the Samaritans. And they were considered to be traitors, impure, and no longer belonging to the Jewish fold. You're not invited to the family gathering anymore. And in fact, when the exiles eventually came back from captivity, they cut off all their ties with the Samaritans. They didn't allow them to even come and worship with them in their temple. And so the Samaritans built their own temple on a mountain they had, Mount Gerizim. But fights broke out. The Samaritans desecrated the Jerusalem temple, and the Jews ended up destroying the Samaritan temple. Lives were lost. Villages were burnt. It's bad. And ever since, there was a deep-seated hatred between Samaritans and Jews. And this is why verse 4 is so significant, that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Jesus had to go through enemy territory because he was about to have an encounter with a woman that would change her life forever and the life of her community. Jesus and his disciples, they get about a day and a half into their journey and they reach Sakar, the Samaritan town where Jacob's well is. You can actually still visit it today. Tired from the long walk and the midday sun, Jesus sits down at the well while his disciples head into town to get something to eat. When a Samaritan woman came to the well to draw water. Now this is a very significant detail. It was not normal for a woman to go alone to draw water at the well, and it was not normal to come at noon when it was hot. Normally this was a social activity that women from the town would do together in the morning when it was cool, or in the evenings. It was a way for them to socialize and do work together. But she comes alone and at the hottest hour of the day. And this tells us that the other women had either shunned her from community, from joining them, or this woman had isolated herself from the other women. Clearly, this woman's reputation, her moral character were in question, and she went to the well at this hour intentionally so that she would be alone. And when she arrives at the well, Jesus is already there waiting for her. And then we get the most shocking and dare I say scandalous part of the story. Jesus asks her for a drink of water. Now we may read this with our Western cultural eyes and we say, what's the big deal? I ask people for water all the time. It was a big deal. And we know this because of the woman's response in verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you even ask me for a drink? And then John lets us know, the reader, in parentheses, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Now, we already covered the deep-seated hatred between these two groups, but there's more to it. Jews were very concerned with their ritual purity laws. You can read about it in the Old Testament. They tried very hard to be both morally pure, but also ritually pure. And this was required if they wanted to go into the temple to worship. And their temple worship wasn't just like a Sabbath thing for two hours. A lot of their life happened in the temple, week, day in, day out. Life happened in the temple. And if you were not ritually pure, you couldn't enter. So Jews would not touch people with diseases. They would not have contact with women. 
when they were in their menstrual cycle. They would not touch anything that had to do with death or bodily fluids. I'm a bit of a germaphobe, so I can kind of relate with that. But they wouldn't touch anything that had anything to do with disease, bodily fluids, or death. And they would never share utensils for drinking and eating with a Samaritan. Furthermore, Jewish tradition dictated that Jewish men should not talk to women in public, not even their own wives. You can look it up. Josephus, a historian, writes about that. And as a rabbi, a teacher, an example, you would want to double down on these expectations, on these purity laws, and make sure that your morals and your ritual purity was never in question. This is why the woman is so surprised and taken aback at the fact that Jesus is talking to her. Jesus is breaking all kinds of rules by initiating this conversation and by requesting that an unclean Samaritan woman give him something to drink with her water jar. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. What was this gift of God? And what is the living water? According to um, Jewish tradition and commentators say that the greatest gift of God was the Torah. The first five books of Moses, the books of the law, that was their greatest gift of God. Now the Jews at this point, they had the Torah, the first five books of Moses, and the prophetic books that we have in our Old Testament. But Samaritans did not recognize the prophetic books in their Bible. They only accepted the books of Moses. They only accepted the Torah. So as I read this, I think what Jesus is saying to this woman, if you really knew even your limited Bible, you would know that it points to me, right? If the word of God is the greatest gift, and the Gospel of John says that the word became flesh in Jesus, then Jesus himself is the gift of God to which all the scriptures point to. And the gift that he gives is eternal life to all those who receive him. And what is the living water? It is the gift of the Holy Spirit. John mentions this specifically three chapters later in chapter 7, verse 37 through 39, where he he equates living water with the Holy Spirit. It's the only other time in the gospel where he mentions living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? She doesn't get it. What living water is Jesus possibly talking about? We're in a desert, there's one well. Where where is it? And what happens a lot in the gospel of John is the use of a term that has a double meaning, a physical, earthly meaning, and a spiritual meaning. Jesus is speaking on a spiritual level, but the woman misunderstands it on a physical level. Living water on the physical level was what we would call running water, fresh water, water from a stream or a river, not stagnant water. On the spiritual level, the Old Testament talks about living water as referring to God. Jeremiah 17 Zechariah 14, both mention that. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks 
this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Notice, she's still thinking on a physical level. She, she doesn't quite understand what Jesus is implying, but she is beginning to realize that whatever it is Jesus is offering, she wants it. There is a change beginning to take place in her. Notice that as the story unfolds. And he tells her, go tell your husband and come back. Ouch. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say that you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. The law at the time uh, did allow for a woman to marry multiple times throughout her life because it was common for women to get married very early on um, in their life to older men who had jobs and had security and had money to take care of them. And so it was not uncommon for a young woman to outlive one, two, even three husbands. Rabbinic law allowed for up to three husbands in your lifetime. And unfortunately, sadly, it was very easy for men in that culture to divorce their wife. Not the other way around, but it was easy for men to divorce their wife. But regardless, Five husbands was questionable. It was excessive, even for that Middle Eastern culture. And the fact that she was living with the six whom she was not even married to raised moral questions and tells us that this woman was in an unhealthy cycle of going through men. Her shame is evident by the fact that she's alone at the well. Notice what is happening as the story unfolds. Jesus encounters a woman in her brokenness. And she develops a realization that whatever Jesus is offering is something that she needs and she wants, even though she doesn't fully understand what that is. And now Jesus confronts her with her sin. He does not condemn her. He does not judge her. But he brings to light her own sin and her brokenness so that she can realize her need for the living water that he's offering. It's only when we learn to recognize our own brokenness and our own sin and our own failures that we can become aware of a need for a savior, right? If we've got it all together, we don't need Jesus. But it's only when we start to recognize our own brokenness that we can recognize that we need him, that we need this water that he's offering. But becoming aware of our own sin is not super comfortable, is it? Any, anyone that's like, I love, that's my hobby. I love becoming more aware of my mess-ups. What happens, what happens when somebody touches a sore spot in your life? When someone confronts you about your own sin, it's incredibly uncomfortable, right? We don't like to talk about it. So what is our gut reaction when someone touches a sore spot in our life? We change the subject. We don't want to talk about my mess. Let's not talk about me and my failures. Let's just, uh, I don't know, debate a theological issue or some abstract spiritual topic. That way we're still kind of talking about God but has nothing to do with me. And that's what this woman does. Jesus touches 
probably the sorest spot in her life, and she also diverts the conversation to a big abstract religious topic. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the right place to worship is in Jerusalem. Yes, she's diverting the conversation, but remember, a change is taking place in her. She just called him a prophet. What books of the Bible did they not recognize? The prophetic books. This is a huge step because Samaritans did not recognize any prophet past Moses. That's why they didn't recognize the rest of the Old Testament. In fact, they knew that the next prophet would eventually come to be the Messiah, and they got this from their Bible in Deuteronomy 18. Moses himself promised them that the next prophet would be the Messiah. She's beginning to recognize that maybe Jesus is this prophet, and so she tests him. So yes, on one level she's diverting it, but now she calls him a prophet. She's like, okay, if you really are the prophet, surely you could settle the age-old question about where the right place to worship is. Is it here in Samaria or is it in Jerusalem? Now, I thought I had everything figured out, but as I did a bit more research on this text, some commentators suggested that this may also have been a very personal question for her. Because the question for her was, where can she go worship? She was not allowed to go worship in the temple in Jerusalem, ever. And the Jews had destroyed their temple on Mount Gerizim. Where then could she possibly go to worship? We can begin to sympathize with the need that this woman would have had to feel loved, to be included in community, to be known. And perhaps this is why she kept hoping that the next man in her life would fulfill her needs of acceptance, of being valued. This was her metaphorical water that she kept going to that ultimately did not satisfy. She had no place she was accepted. And if God really did offer a satisfying living water to her, Where then could she go to receive it? She can't go to the temple in Jerusalem. Her temple's broken. And then Jesus, and then Jesus declared, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and the worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Did you catch that? Jesus promises this woman that she will have access to God and be able to worship him. The place of worship will soon not matter anymore. But to answer her theological question, Jesus says, the Jews had it right, for they acknowledge all of God's written word, the Torah and the prophets, and not only the first five books of the Bible. And God's word does say that salvation will come from the Jews, but it will not be only for the Jews. 
it will be for her too. It will be for the Samaritans and the Jews. It will be for everyone who asks Jesus for living water. And this brings me to my final thoughts that I want to share with you this morning, and they'll serve as our closing challenge or as our application to reflect on. The first one is that the living water Jesus offers is for everyone. And the challenge to me and the challenge to you is to actually think about, do I actually believe that? Who's the Samaritans in your life who you may think, "Uh, I don't know if they deserve to be here. I don't know if, uh, I know Jesus says he'll save everyone, but that person is too messed up. Do you believe it? It's not a coincidence that just prior to this story, Jesus offers salvation to a Pharisee, Nicodemus, a respectable, educated, devout Jewish man. And then in the very next chapter, he offers it to this despised, uneducated, morally sinful Samaritan woman. Jesus came for both. And both need the living water that he offers. The second point is that the living water Jesus offers is a gift. Can you accept it as a gift? Maybe you relate to the Samaritan woman's story and you actually have a hard time accepting this. Do you believe that Jesus offers living water even to you? Maybe you think that you're not actually good enough to be a Christian or you don't have your life together enough to maybe come to church or that your life is just such a mess that I don't think Jesus can do anything about it. Surely he didn't mean me. And if that's you, then this story is for you this morning. Jesus shows us that there is no one too broken, no one too sinful for whom the offer of living water is not extended to. The question is only, will you accept it? And likewise, in the previous chapter, if you want to go home and read chapter 3, where he talks to Nicodemus the Pharisee, his challenge is also, do you think you need the living water that I offer? Because for him, the challenge was that there is no one righteous enough, no one pure enough, that they have any claim on God's living water. You cannot earn it. Friends, moral pride and self-righteousness are dangerous sins because they blind us from recognizing our own need for this gift as well. The living water that Jesus offers is not something we earn. It is an unmerited gift that we can only receive. So are we humble enough to recognize that we too need this gift? That was the Pharisee's challenge. The woman said, I know that that Messiah is coming. And when he comes, he's going to explain all of this. And then that verse Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. This is the first time in John's gospel where Jesus explicitly reveals himself as the Messiah. And it's not to a respectable Jewish man. It's to this broken Samaritan woman. And I love her reaction. It says, then leaving her water jar, she just came this whole way in the desert to fill up her water jar, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And they came out of the town and made their way toward him. 
It's easy to glance over the fact that she left her jar, but I think this is very symbolic. She leaves her water of stagnant water that does not quench her thirst so that she can receive the living water that Jesus is offering. This is what repentance looks like. Repentance is to stop drinking from the water that does not ultimately satisfy and to drink from the water that does. The water that Jesus offers not only satisfies in this life, but he promises here that it bubbles up to eternal life. Take that, Red Bull. And that's my third challenge. To receive the water that Jesus offers, we need to let go of the stagnant water that we're holding on to. What is that stagnant and stale water that you and I keep going back to or hold on to, hoping that that will ultimately fulfill our desires? What might God be asking you, what, what jar of water is he maybe asking you to let go of so that you can actually embrace the living water that he's offering? Maybe you're here, and maybe for you, that is actually turning to Jesus for the first time in your life and turning away from a life that has been void of Jesus. And maybe you're here and you're already a Christian, but maybe this passage of living water welling up to eternal life, it sounds amazing, but maybe if you're honest, you think, I don't know if that actually describes my spiritual life. I am a Christian, but you might wonder, why is this not my experience currently? I would invite you to pray about that. Maybe you are going to sources other than the living water to fill your needs. Or maybe you're stuck in a cycle of sin that you need to break free from. I think it is a daily decision to drink from the water that Jesus offers and not to drink from the water that does not give life. It's a daily decision. Maybe you don't experience a spirit filled life, not because of a blatant sin in your life, but because maybe you're just too busy and too distracted with either the pleasures or the worries or concerns of the world that you've kind of restricted that water flow into your life. Or maybe like the Pharisees, you feel like you're just going through the motions, trying to live a moral life, do the religious things, but sometimes it just feels more like a chore than an actual lived relationship with the living God. You might tell Jesus, hey, thanks for that initial drink, but I think I've got it from here. Okay, I know where to go if I need it. All of us have the tendency to stray and drink from other sources in life. And this is why repentance is not a one-time thing. It is a daily thing. And last but not least, Tell others where to find this spring of living water. There's more than enough to go around. Share it. The woman goes back to town immediately and she says, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And they came out of the town and made their way towards him. And then skipping to the end of the passage, it says, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Evangelism or sharing your faith is not about handing out cringy tracts. 
It's not about having a formula figured out and if you say it just right, then you'll convert someone. This story, at least, tells us that evangelism or sharing your faith is about simply sharing what Christ has done in your life and then to invite others to come and see for themselves what Jesus wants to do in their life. Amen. Worship team, you can come up.